Hello, and welcome to another installment of The Weird Chronicles. Each episode, we bring you tales of action and adventure from Malifaux and the other side. Today's episode brings us to the Governor General's Manor on All Hallows' Eve for a masked ball. But removing a mask is not always enough to reveal a person's true identity. I hope you enjoy Unmask, Unmask. Unmask, Unmask by Matthew Farah Jacques looks up, and the thing is looming over him, seeming to fill the manor's double doorway. For a moment he is only able to take it in as disparate glimpses, the bizarrely wide torso, the strange mess of angles and protrusions jutting from the broad shoulders, gleaming metal patterning its limbs. Its face is in shadow. It's holding something out to him. Jacques does not so much as blink. He bows, smiles, and takes the little white card. Good evening, Mr. Schuster, and welcome to the manor. Jacques turns to the figure's companion, and Mrs. Schuster, his excellency is delighted to have your company. I'm industry, you see, says a genial whiskey-roughened voice. See? Industry. Industry supporting Malifaux and all of Earthside. In the better light of the hall, more details become apparent. Stylized pistons and engine rods swarm about the figure's limbs. Its belly is a mock furnace, its face a fanciful rendering of an industrial construct's mask. The strange shapes across its shoulders are models of buildings. Jacques recognises the Malifaux spire in among the Earthside landmarks. And you, Mrs. Schuster. My husband is industry. So I am art. She flourishes the flute and scroll she carries. Her white tunic is mock Grecian, and her mask is a netted veil hung from a wreath around her brow. Elegant and striking, ma'am, Jacques says. Please, if you will follow Robert through to the main hall, His Excellency hopes you will enjoy the evening to the fullest. Another carriage is already pulling up at the foot of the steps. Jacques hurries to greet it, tossing the card onto a table with a scattering of its siblings. The gold border is thick enough to clink faintly when it lands. The card reads, Mr. Wentworth and Mrs. Elizabeth Schuster are invited to provide the pleasure of their company at the inaugural Vice-Regal All Hallows Masked Ball to be held in the Governor-General's Manor from 8pm at All Hallows' Eve. Costumed so as to symbolise their role and station here in Malifaux, with a general unmasking to take place upon the stroke of midnight. The script is an elegant copperplate, so precise that it looks mechanically done. But tonight is too important to trust even such a tiny detail to machinery, and the handwriting on the cards is that of Lucius Matheson himself. In the tunnels below, there is also lantern light but the light is hooded, furtive and frightened. 
there's a quick and heartfelt curse, and then, with the click of a shutter, the light is gone again. Can't you leave the damn thing open? I didn't get a proper look. Shut up, or at least don't talk so loud. I got a look. There's space. We just have to be careful. The second voice's owner gives a loud and marshy sniff. Some ghoul telling me to be quiet. Those sinuses of yours are going to shake the bloody roof down on our heads before we get there. I'm not used to breathing sewer fog unlike you, apparently. A moment of aggrieved silence, and the voice relents. All right, fine. Wait a moment. The lantern unshutters again. Cadwell and Grimes are facing one another over the fat barrel casing of the bomb. It really is a barrel, appropriated from a brew house on the station road. The idea was that the wood will thud rather than clang against brickwork or gates, less likely to alert a guard. The two men in the tunnel, and the others who have helped them to get here, have all taken it for granted that there would be guards, particularly on this night of all nights. Where is everyone? Grimes asks as they manhandled the bomb through the gate. Everyone who? You know it's just us for the final push. Or do you fancy the whole lot of us going in together to light the fuse and then, oof, come running back right into the guild's arms because nobody stayed back to keep the escape route clear? Every one of them, you numpty. Guild! Something occurs to him. Did you say fuse? You haven't put an actual powder fuse in there, have you? Because the number of ways that could... Will you keep your voice down and relax? Cadwall cuts him off. No, we're not going to have to put a taper to a fuse like a pair of old black powder Charlies. Give me a little credit. Do I ask you if your bomb is just a barrel stuffed with cheap dynamite sticks? No, because I trust that someone of your reputation knows how to... All right, all right. Grimes grits his teeth and they heave the barrel clear of the gate, setting it down on its thick wooden trestle. Come on. Shut the light again if you want. We can manage this next bit in the dark. In the last moments, before the lantern closes, it illuminates his scowl. This close to the manor tunnels, though. He mutters. Can't believe nobody's watching them. This close to the manor tunnels, though, mutters Victor Ramus. Can't believe nobody's watching them. Remus isn't talking to anyone in particular. In fact, he's alone in his laboratory. The apparatus carries pictures but not sounds, so Ramos has become a competent lip-reader. He finds it helps to echo the words as he watches them being spoken. The light from the treated quartz plate bathes Ramos's face and glances off his spectacle lenses. His sharp, mobile features are pinched with concentration. His tiny electric spider has been tracking the pair for half an hour, ever since he found out the hot-headed idiot defied his specific instructions and went herring off on this quixotic stupidity. He knows where they are now. He knows all the tunnels around the manor, has mapped them personally. Many of the secret accesses and vandalised locks are his own work, the bribes that ensure the guild security blind spots stay blind come out of his own damned pocket. 
Ramos had very specific goals in mind for all that trouble. This stunt is not one of them. Ramos steps back from the work table and runs a hand through his wiry, flyaway grey hair. I didn't get an invitation to the ball either. He snaps to the empty lab. But do you see me running off to blow the place up? The joke fails to lift his mood. Letting their plan go ahead is out of the question, of course. Even if their reckless delusions come true and their decapitation strike cracks Malifaux wide open, what do they expect to happen next? Worse, what becomes of him? Ramus told us it couldn't be done and forbade us from trying, but we did it anyway, and we pulled it off. Where might that sort of talk lead? Ramos can't see a good way out of this, only a range of bad ones. He considers the best of the bad options for a moment, faces up to it, and makes his decision. His ethervox is under a cloth shroud by the overstuffed armchair in the corner. Occasions like these remind Ramos why he keeps it in here and to himself. Was there something, Jacques? I... Jacques swallows. Have some more cards, sir. He glances around the great empty chamber and then looks again at the ether box on its little wheeled stand at Lucius Matheson's elbow. The Governor-General's secretary stretches cat-like in his chair, crosses his legs delicately at the ankles, and regards Jacques in silence. Mr. and Mrs. Schuster, Colonel and Lady Saint-Foy, Lady Duffield, Mr. Hillel and his son. Take those, would you? Lucius says into the gloom. A whisper of sound and movement nearby, and suddenly Jacques's hand is empty. You are welcoming the guests properly, Jacques. Of course you are. The Governor-General's expectations are quite specific. There has been enough disruption to our plans for this night. Disruption, sir? I trust that if there is any way in which I can assist in... Jacques's voice trails off. A slight tilt of Lucius's masked head has been enough to silence him. Assist? You have some way of reversing the recent tragedy that opened so many unfortunate gaps in our guest list for tonight? Ah, you refer to the massacre at the Grey Lord. I do. I regret I have not. I mistook your reference, sir. You did. Lucius's hand steals out. His fingers begin to tap on the ethervox case, then to drum on it. Jacques watches, fascinated. It's the first blemish he's ever seen in the secretary's seamless poise. If that will be all, sir, he says finally. I shall return to the doors and leave you to make your call. Oh, the call was made. Lucius's hand falls still. Rooted directly to my office, although only a handful of devices ought to be able to do that. And masked, so that the voice was unrecognisable to me. And I pride myself on the acuity of my hearing. I see, sir. Do you, Jacques? How clever of you. And since you have so kindly offered to assist, 
Why don't you send Mr. Hoffman to see me? Leave Robert in charge at the door and go. The green eyepieces glitter in Matheson's mask. Waste no time, Jacques. None. The dark and the fetid air are bad, but the worst of it is their own nerves. Grimes and Cadwell know they're deep in enemy territory now. Any moment could bring lanterns and voices and shots. It's been a few minutes since they found that the directions on their dog-eared wax paper map have run out. While Cadwell squints at it, Grimes lets his eyes wander as he waits for his breath to return. Suddenly, Grimes understands why the map has stopped. We're here! What? Look! Grimes takes the lantern, shines it around them. Five-sided chamber. Old grey brickwork showing reddish where it's chipped. Dark tide mark at knee height. He has to dip the lantern to see it, but it's there. Three stone pillars, brick for the rest. Three-sided design on the ceiling in black tile. Cadwall starts grinning, and Grimes feels the excitement too. The decapitation strike. The start of the true revolt. The thing Ramos said was impossible. Grimes wishes he'd brought his hip flask. One little nip would suit the occasion beautifully. Let's get it set, he says instead. He grabs a rope handle and yanks out one end of the barrel casing. Hunkering down, he smells a sharp, oily stink with an odd hint of ozone. He listens carefully to the rhythmic bubbling from the central glass retort. He reaches in and, eyes closed, tightens a valve, then screws a pressure stop through an agonisingly slow three-quarter turn. Done. He breathes. Where Grimes worked by smell and sound, Cadwall goes by feel. With his long, deft fingers, he trips the catch to set the timer in motion and disengages the locking plate. Then, with the same focused care that Grimes used to prime the charge, he clips two small gear wheels into a little device bolted to the bomb trestle, tightens a chain running up into the barrel, drops a latch into place, then sits back on his haunches. So, there we are, he says, and he can't quite hide the tremor in his voice. Timer going. Timer and trap. The whole chassis is sprung now, so if anyone finds it and tries to... No, no, that's enough. You asked. Timer's going. That's enough. If you don't tell me how the timer works, and I don't tell you how exactly I brewed up the charge. Ah, says Cadwall. Right, of course. He reaches out to the barrel to steady himself as he stands, then pulls his hand back. Grimes, noticing his reaction, looks at the bomb and sees it anew. Now armed, it seems alive in a quiet, menacing way that even his foundry machines don't. And it doesn't help that Grimes knows exactly what the mixture inside of it is going to do at the designated time. Time is set for just after midnight, right? That, at least, is no secret. Grimes had to know so that he could work out how long he needed to keep his mix stable for. Four minutes after, Cadwall confirms. Unmask, ladies and gentlemen, unmask. Boom! There's a slight brittleness to his laughter. What time do you make it? 
six after eleven. Time is set accordingly. It feels later to Grimes, but he shrugs. Cadwall's a specialist. And Malifaux does odd things to the tracking of time anyway. Another part of its constant background strangeness that nobody ever really talks about. Cadwall. Huh? The mechanist starts, blinks, jerkily pushes a flop of blonde hair back up off his forehead. Grimes is about to snipe at him, but he remembers his own reaction to the arming of the bomb. He gentles his voice a little. Off we go then, mate. Nothing more to do here. We can be proud of our handiwork from a safe distance, eh? Cadwall swallows, rubs his hands, and gives Grimes a grateful look. Off we go, then. Just as you say. Funny, he says, as they pick their way back in damp gloom. I thought there'd be more to it, at the end, like that. Thought it would feel, well, different. Do you feel, well, different? Asked the woman as the third promenade around the ballroom finishes. The air is a cocktail of alcohol, cigar smoke, cologne and perfume. I feel blub. Jacob Samuels catches himself. Pardon me, madam. I feel dashed awkward, being honest with you. I confess this is all a little foreign to me. The invitation said to dress symbolising his position, and Samuels, rather astonished at being invited at all, had to puzzle over how to symbolise the running of fighting pits. He finally settled on an uncomfortable rented suit, adorned with a pair of heavy, bronze-studded leather cestus, bought at an earthside antiquities auction. His mask is a likeness of Jack Broughton, a man Samuels admires immensely. Samuels has no time for this new foppish Marquis of Queensbury nonsense. All his fights use old Jack's rules. All his legal fights, anyway. He realises he's drifted and tries to focus back on the woman's voice. Like the feeling of being on a river punt. Have you ever ridden one of those? If you don't pay attention and check the bank, you don't realise you're being quietly carried along. He is starting to understand what she means. As the musicians strike up and the throng sorts itself into pairs, he can see it everywhere. Tonight's dances have strange names and odd rhythms that nobody seems familiar with, and everyone's dance cards were handed out pre-filled, but still everyone is moving in unison. People are looking around in puzzlement as they dance, as though they are not sure how they even know the steps. The revellers move past with an odd, forced briskness that Samuels is more used to seeing when his men are forcibly escorting someone off the premises. Good, the woman says, looking at him. Her mask is half a silver-painted crescent moon and half a radiating star. Good, he says, distractedly as the music carries them across the floor. They are moving in a twisting double-step pattern, that reminds him of some of the stick-fighting drills he teaches in the pits, although he's never learned this dance or any other. Good. You do see it. Something's going on here, isn't it? Something's always going on at the manor, ma'am, he says, to buy time. I don't suppose tonight is any different. I don't believe that any more than you do, 
I'm new to this city, sir, but I can feel it. So can most of us. We just don't know what we're feeling. I think something's going to happen. He looks down at her. Her gunmetal grey hair is fastened with jewelled pins, whose heads are stylized stars. Her midnight blue gown is embroidered with constellations Samuels remembers from Earthside. Her shawl is a dark red and patterned after the night sky of Malifaux. Lady Duffield, the Guild Astronomer. Samuels wants to make another non-committal remark to deflect the woman's sharp words, but what comes out of his mouth is foreign on his tongue. Yes. Yes, I think something is. Where is it? Charles Hoffman doesn't realise he's mouthing the words in time with the metallic beat of his steps. It's close. It has to be. Where? Where? He reaches a junction, concentrates for a moment and swerves. Ahead he can just see his hunter construct accelerating away into the gloom. He grabs the metal beast with his mind, pulls on it. He can feel the mechanical power of its lunging body, and he threads that power back through himself and the walking frame into which he is strapped. A moment later, a pulse of power sends veins starting on his forehead, and with a screech of metal on brickwork, he skids to the corner on the metal beast's heels. Where is it? He can even see the thing in his mind. His watcher came upon it minutes ago. But although Hoffman can sense the watcher, he doesn't know the tunnel layout between here and there. He has already wasted excruciating minutes on two different dead ends. Damn Matheson, didn't he have guards down here? Why the hell did he order me down here alone? How am I supposed to get there in time? In the ghostly vision drawn from the watcher, the bomb in the barrel ticks and ticks. Hoffman fights down the urge to have his machine claw the bomb to pieces. He can see enough to know that it's trapped against exactly that kind of interference. He pushes on. Fate has a sick sense of humour. To choose him of all people for a race against time with who knows how many lives at stake. The stolen speed from the hunter isn't enough. He has to get there faster. It starts to stir. He can feel it, wanting to push out again. That thing that burst into existence after the energy wave. The great metal body that took him up and cradled him in its arms. He has felt it since, needling, wanting to manifest through him again. Each time it's felt subtler, less separate, more a part of him. Hoffman isn't sure what that means. He has tried not to think about it. But he's too far into the tunnels to turn back and run. The blast will catch him. He needs that power again. He remembers it, reaches out in a direction he cannot describe, and touches it. His eyelids flutter closed, and he gives rein to it. The truth now, Lucius. The truth. This is too important for your parlour games. Lucius Matheson's body remains almost as motionless and unreadable as his metal mask. Tucked behind his back, where the Governor-General can't see it, the little finger of his right hand curls and taps against the haft of his cane. 
I know you called in Hoffman on a matter of high urgency and sent him packing off somewhere. I know he took some constructs with him. Something's happening. So out with it. I received a report that radical elements of our opposition planned to sabotage our plans for tonight. I have a trusted special agent, ensuring that if these reports are true, and I stress, sir, that all we are going on is a single anonymous message, that they are defeated and brought to justice. These are the facts of the matter, sir. I know of no others. The Governor-General leans his great form forward in his chair, glaring at his secretary. A bright purple spark arises in his right eye, shades into a brilliant electric blue, and dances across to the left eye where it flares azure and indigo, then fades again. Lucius doesn't react. I let you talk me into this whole business, you know, Lucius. A wise decision on your part, sir if I may be immodest enough to say so. Be that as it may, what is happening tonight is your doing. You were behind its instigation, so you will be responsible for its successful completion. In every respect, do I make myself clear, Matheson? I would expect nothing else, Your Excellency. Staying mindful of which, shall I have your valet help you finish dressing? It is almost midnight. You will be required to announce the unmasking, since we both agree that everything about tonight must happen precisely to plan. His walking frame has stretched out, as though the heavy alloy were soft toffee flowing into Hoffman's body. This is no crude and bloody patch-and-stitch affair. The metal softens. Flesh hardens and shines until they blur together. Bronze tendrils like vines wrap Hoffman's arms and creep up his shaved scalp. The iron-shod boots have splayed and deformed into simulacra of clawed feet. His eyes are still closed. He is smiling. He drops to all fours the metal growing out to lengthen his arms into running limbs, carrying him in powerful, springing strides. He runs in a ghostly whirl of angular shadows, and the clash of metal as though a phantom pair of mechanical wings is beating behind him. In the five-sided cabin, the watcher's crystal eye illuminates the ticking timer beneath the barrel of alchemical charge. A handful of minutes to go. My lords and ladies, my gentlemen and worthy officers of Malifaux, the voice booms, a great husky baritone that sends a quiet jitter up and down the costumed crowd in the dimness of the ballroom. For all this All Hallows' Eve, my friends, you have presented yourselves by your offices. But now, now as we hear the voice of midnight striking, your Governor-General bids you show yourselves for yourselves. Let the light see your faces. My loyal friends, unmask, unmask. And the lanterns burst their shutters and fill the gallery with a great white light.
Am I? What is this? It's here. Hoffman convulses as though he has just jolted awake from a nightmare, bucking against the walking harness. He looks wildly about him, then down at the barrel bomb and the shine and tick of the metal underneath it. He was tramping through the tunnels, and then it felt like... His eyes half close. He brings one thin, work-hardened hand up and deals himself a slap across his face. No time. No time. His frame hinges at the knees, and he lowers himself with a groan to look at the thing. This is why Matheson sent him. The trigger is devilishly complex. The trap equally so. Hoffman doesn't dare touch with his hand, barely dares with his mind. Careful as a trainer trying to calm a panicking animal, he moves through the machinery. He can hear himself taking hoarse, panting breaths. He can feel the timer ticking. Less than a minute to go. No brute force. Too many complexities. And some of them are dead ends. Dummy components. But it will take too long to unpick which ones. No time. No time. He gulps. Gaps too, where gaps shouldn't be. Part of the puzzle? You can do this. Ryle would tell you that. Do it and go home to your brother. Hoffman bites down on his lip hard enough to draw blood and reaches out again. The ripple of excitement grows into a cheer. The revellers can't resist. Masks are not just doffed but thrown into the air. Nobody has been in any doubt about anyone's identity, but the spirit of the moment still takes hold, and the guests point, laughing in delight at familiar faces. On the landing of the processional stair stands their host, in dazzling dress uniform, face set in grim triumph. The ten-foot canvas behind him shows the breach, the painting's border decked with the vice-regal arms and a miniature Zodiac of Guild badges. A ram's head, a set of scales, a construct gauntlet, crossed revolvers, a steel mask. Slowly, majestically, he stands at attention and salutes the room. The revellers burst into cheers. And it happens. Spinning and whirling in a sword drill alone in her hall, Lady Justice feels her balance go and her senses distort. She twists like a cat to land, but the floor is not where it should be and she crashes hard. Struggling for equilibrium, for the first time in many years, she feels truly blind. Douglas McMorning looks up from his work. Everything in his lab, his animated studies, his servants, even the half-dissected or half-rebuilt things on the slabs or floating in the vats, all are staring as though they could see through the wall, staring in the direction of the governor's manor. His puppets dance for his attention in a rattle of wood, but Collodi ignores them, spreading his arms for balance and trying to understand why he feels as though he is once again standing on a stage, a great, brightly lit stage, his strings tugged by a puppeteer he cannot see. 
changing the board once the game is underway, Hamlin says to the glossy black rat that perches on his knee as he in turn perches on a roof gable, pipes in hand. He looks toward the manor. How audacious! What have you done now, you vermin? Lilith growls into the dark. What have you gone and done to my world now? How? It... but... how? Shaking, Hoffman sags against the side of the barrel. Sweat plasters his shirt to him. The hunter and watcher look on. He knows he had it. He had found the spring anchored into the timing gears and the cunning assembly that mated it to the trap. He had it in his mind's eye, ready to be disarmed. Then that jolt had hit him. That strange instant of fugue. For a moment he had been a piece in a delicate lattice of machinery almost organic in its complexity. And somewhere a monstrous lever had just shifted it all into a new gear. Then the fugue passed. Hoffman had just enough time to realise his mental grip had slipped. He felt the timer finish, and the trigger catch drop to the detonation position. And yet, here he is. What happened? It's not finished, the Governor-General says, as the clouds part and the strange stars come out. After the heat and closeness of the ballroom, the clean chill is wonderful. It's not even started. Don't go thinking your job's done, Lucius. There's no harshness there. Just the satisfied weariness of one who has got a tough job out of the way. Of course not, sir, Lucius answers. But I congratulate you on a superbly executed first step. I am pleased to see your excellency's work furthered in such a manner. I thought I felt something. Did you feel it? I did, I think, perceive it taking hold, sir. I believe it was an unqualified success. I think you will see the full effects very soon. Only the guild and the city folk, though, eh? Such is the nature of what we did tonight. The effects may spread, but they will not cover the world. As you observed, sir, we have more work to do. But it's a start. The Viceroy leans forward over the stone parapet, watching the lights of the last few carriages make their way toward the gates. They pushed me to this, Lucius. Just so, sir. An empty land full of such wealth, such potential. If these people just accepted a little order, if people understood, each of them, what their job was, quit their complaining and their blasted chafing at the leash. Do they think I hand down these laws just for my own entertainment? A strong leader, Lucius, able to make the hard decisions. It's the only thing that will make this place work. They don't see that. You did what you had to, sir, I am sure. Hmm. Below, in the middle distance, the manor gates creak closed behind the last carriage. A thought crosses the Governor-General's mind. 
The saboteurs were caught, then? Foiled. Certainly, sir. We will have them before long. We will. The craggy face splits in a savage grin. They couldn't stop us tonight. And the more I control, the more isolated they'll be. There will come a time, Lucius, when every human soul in Malifaux will move to my will, as though they were drilling on a parade ground. And where will these rioting, treason-talking vermin have to hide then, eh? He stretches, grunts at the pops from his back and shoulders. There are great times ahead. Great times. Happy Halloween, Lucius. And to you, Excellency. Especially to you. It's deep night in the bayou and the chill of the season is starting to make itself felt. Patches of pale mist have formed over the water. Zoraida has gone so far as to wrap a shawl around her to sit out on her step. Silent, she sits among the complex songs of the insects and frogs. She doesn't move when she hears the soft footsteps, simply smiles. There is a soft thud in front of her, a gentle clink of metal, a soft rattle. Zoraida opens her eyes. The carrion effigy is standing in front of her. The eyes of its beaked plague mask are fixed on her. She can sense nothing in it except expectation. It tosses the little spring it is carrying down onto the ground to join the length of brass rod, the glinting gear wheel and the half-dozen delicate little screws. The hodgepodge, shadow and mysterious effigies stand a few paces away. The masks they wear for faces watch Carrion as it shuffles over to them. The arcane effigy glides forward, holds up a ratchet mechanism for Zoraida to see, and then tosses it onto the pile also. The lucky effigy adds the matching spring catch. The brutal effigy completes the pile with a copper valve, nods curtly and steps back into the group. Zoraida is still smiling. I thought you might hear me. We have our squabbles from time to time, but you're good little ones underneath it all, aren't you? So good. I miss the times when you used to come and visit me. If the effigies feel anything at these words, they do not show it clearly. Half vanished in the moon shadows, they make soft sounds in what might almost be voices, like a baby breathing little nun words in its sleep. Zoraida looks down at the pile of components. She knows what they are, right enough. Cadwall would recognise them too, although he might refuse to believe that they could have been removed from his machine without detonating it. And Charles Hoffman would surely remember the gaps in the trigger mechanism that these pieces fill exactly. The bomb conspiracy had been impossible to miss, a bright firework aimed into the centre of the crude spiderweb that was the Governor-General's ritual. Zoraida had watched them both develop, reading their twists and turns in the patterns of the clouds over the bayou, the crisscrossing ripples in the gator's wakes, and the paths of the birds through the trees. The conspiracy, and the conspiracy to kill the conspiracy. It hadn't been a difficult choice as to which one she would allow to go ahead, the sledgehammer bluntness of the Governor-General's spell 
was not to Zoraida's taste. But she admires its cleverness and its ambition. She can even appreciate its style. She is no stranger to the magic of distilling and drawing a concept down into its symbol. The evidence of her expertise in that is standing assembled in front of her. But the effigies were made things. The masquerade guests were living people who had created their guises themselves and donned them willingly, voluntarily shifting themselves from the material to the symbolic. The magical ramifications of that fascinate Zoraida. She wonders if anyone in the manor knew that their dances and promenades were precisely calculated, moving them through the ritual patterns that would bind them to their host's will. She wonders if any of them felt the spell lock in like a manacle as they unmasked, binding the magical grip on their symbolic self to their actual self. Fine work, Zoraida concedes. Damn fine work. Of course you had help, she murmurs. For a moment, the smoke from her pipe seems to curl into the shape of a haughty metal mask with gleaming green stones for eyes. Not forgetting that. He would never know how much help he had, she thinks. No need to share it with him, not after what she has seen. Ambition, ah, what a two-edged sword that is. There is fire in your ending, your excellency, Zoraida says aloud to the knight. But not that fire. Not yet. You listen to Zoraida now. You have more to do before you burn. And she sits in silence. The glow of her pipe, a tiny, pulsing orange eye in the night. That's it for another installment of The Weird Chronicles. Join us next time for more tales of action and adventure.